Welcome to Unleashed at Work and Home, the show dedicated to helping veterinarians, vet techs, dog trainers, shelter and rescue workers, pet sitters, and all the other animal-crazy pet professionals manage their stress and find more joy. I'm your host, Colleen Pilar, and I'm thrilled you're here with us today. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite app so that you won't miss a single episode. This episode is brought to you by our free community, the Circle of Resilient and Thriving Pet Professionals. If you like the ideas shared here, then you're invited to continue the conversation with other lifelong learners in the community. You can find out more at ColleenPilar.com. It's the perfect place for you to learn cool stuff, feel good, and take action to create the life you love. Come join us. Welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home. My guest today is Annie Phoenix. Annie is the owner of Phoenix Dogs Behavior Experts, an author and the founder of the Phoenix Advocacy Center. Thanks so much for joining me today, Annie. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. You and I have had a bunch of conversations where we have dove deep, deep, deep into mental well-being and the importance of that for pet professionals. And we're definitely going to be talking about all sorts of that today. Um, but what I want to do is start back at the beginning. So when Annie was 10, what did she want to be with her life? And how did that path lead you to where you are today? So can you just kind of give us the version of that? Yeah, I'm going to try to do the edited version because <laughs> it's it's a pretty complex story. I like so many of us in animal welfare, I, I came from a highly dysfunctional family, grew up in Austin, Texas, outside of Austin, and had uh, two older or uh, one older brother, younger brother, younger sister, um, very absent, and I would say narcissistic parents, and a very wounded mother. Um very, very her mother was I don't want to get too much details, but her mother was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic in the 1950s in Dallas, Texas, which is not well known for mental health care, particularly in that era. And my mother's an only child. Anyway, so we were left our own devices a whole lot. And um, the, my family was really, I think, quite strange, but probably more common than I than we realized and that we didn't say we loved each other. We didn't hug each other. And mm -hmm. just like with a dog that can, if you don't understand that hugging is a good thing, <laughs> and touch is a good thing and that love is actually mm -hmm. right here. um you have to either become you know really have a really hard life or you find find love where you can find it and i found it in my dog cricket who was like a hound dog german shepherd and i think that's why i just kind of imprinted on german shepherds and have shared my life with so many of them and cricket just showed up one day and this is in the 70s so dogs were a lot different than they are now and he would um be, he'd jump our fence, jump into our backyard. And Cricket and I became fast friends. I, he said, I basically announced he's our dog now. And um, he would follow my school bus to school sometimes across a very busy highway. And I was so concerned about him. Like he would run behind the bus and the driver would open the door and he'd be sitting there. And I'm like, can he please come in? Can he please come in? And then like Lassie, he would find me at recess. I mean, that to wow. me, that guardian angel looking out for me. And I don't know how that happened, but that was my first attack and cats. I had cats that I was very close to. And so I, I would sit outside with him because I didn't want to be in the house if they, when my parents were home because it was a scream fest. And I mean, I, I did a memory recently that said sometimes pets are a person's first experience with love. Mm -hmm. and I think that happens a whole lot, particularly with children. Um, 
And thank God for him because I, I didn't see it anywhere else. Like we were very competitive and very, just all the dysfunctional mess that we now know uh, a lot more about, thankfully. And so I, I would say I had a trauma filled youth, but that bond with animals is what's guided my life for better or for worse. Um, when I got into college, I got my first dog um, that was my own dog, besides just friending every dog I ever saw. I just felt a calling to them. And um, his name was Wiley. And I did write about him in the men's dog walkers because he was intense. He growled at people at three months of age, which I thought was cool. And I know better now, <laughs> 25, 30, well, more than 25 years later, but I wanted protection. I did not have protection in my house. And Rottweiler certainly provided that. And he did. He saved my life literally twice, um, which I write about in the book. One was uh, living by myself in, a, in condos, two-story condos in Austin. And there were like five of them in a little neighborhood. And all five, somebody went up the balcony and into their house and stole stuff, including key, car keys. And Wiley went berserk at the window at two in the morning. And it was a Saturday, I remember, because I thought I was getting the New York Times because I was a writer. And I thought it was a guy just throwing the paper. And he went ballistic and I pulled him in. I had a, the screen open. I was the only female by herself there. And if I had not had that Rottweiler, I don't know what would have happened. And he did what he was bred to do. And the guy, I was the only apartment the guy didn't get into. And the next morning the police came and he went ballistic at the door again. And I'm like, and I was, I was shocked because I slept, you know, I just pulled him out of the room, but thankful. So thankful. Mm -hmm. because I think we get dogs for a reason. And a lot of it is that emotional connection that we're missing yeah. somewhere else. And then the dog becomes, we put too much on the dog. You know, it's kind of like um, we put too much on our spouses. And a therapist I like, Esther Perel, talked mm -hmm. about that so much has changed that we used to have in relationships. I don't want to get off the chart, but we used to have church and we used to have set roles and we used to have family members living at home. And so everything wasn't just on the spouse. And now yeah. it is on the spouse. And I kind of feel like that's part of the problem with dogs now is that we have way too much expectations of them. And I did in my own life. You know, mm -hmm. my heart and soul dog Echo passed away at 14. I mean, I, I used to just look at her all the time and say, how, how am I going to live without you? Because of the yeah. bond was so tight. And I've, I've my new dogs that I have now, it's I don't have those kinds of expectations. It's like you just be a dog. <laughs> well, let me focus on <laughs> what you need versus what you need to give what I want from you. I mean, it was always love and connection. Right. It's not like I wanted, although with a Rottweiler, I wanted protection and he did it. Mm -hmm. I've always been attracted to big, strong dogs. And I've had five or six shepherds throughout my life. Um, I kind of felt like looking back that when I went, switched and got um, brother and sister, border collie siblings, that it was kind of the softer shift. I had been, got married to a great guy by then and figured out some things out about my family because it's so confusing for like the first 20 years of your life trying to figure out what is really happening if you come from dysfunction like I did. Um, so my border collies were protective, but not that wasn't their role in my life. And mm -hmm. I felt like that was a step forward in my evolution is finding dogs that are not meant to scare people away from me. Yeah, <laughs> People were threatening to me. So, um, yeah, I've just always had dogs. I, I got into rescue German Shepherds when I was out of college, I had a PR firm, literary publicity firm of all things, because I was I was very involved in writing and I was I wanted to help writers. Um, and I still do. I still help writers all the time. And I had time because I was the boss of the company to rescue. So I was really fostering a lot of dogs. And then I um, got hooked up with an Austin rescue. And, um, and so my job was to go um, into the rural shelters around Texas, which were horrific in the 90s and not much better now. And there was a horrible one called Town Lake Animal Center that's just I have nightmares of it. 
um, it, it wasn't an adoption center like it is now. It was a place to put dogs that are going to be put to sleep almost before you can get in the car if you drop it off. But I, I realized that I could go in there and nobody was around. You could just walk right in and walk into a cage of a very stressed animal. And I was drawn to the German Shepherds. And so we pulled out so many German Shepherds or herding type dogs in general. For some reason, I have a thing for pointy ears. Um, and that's where I learned body language. Mm-hmm. It's going into those very, uh, I didn't even think about it. And I think I've heard you say, and that's made so much sense to me, that that skill that some of us have of reading body language and hearing what isn't being said mm-hmm. is not a superpower. Like I always, I just thought it was kind of a special gift that, and that I see dogs, I see what they're mm-hmm. doing and I feel their pain if they're in pain or fear. But I think you're exactly right that it probably is more realistic that it came from living in that dysfunctional family where you needed to be head on a swivel. Very attuned. If dad is mad, is dad drunk, is mom mm-hmm. crying in her bedroom again, and what can I do to make her feel better? Um, whatever it is happening in your house, that, you know, it's kind of, it's a, a survival. It is very much a s- survival skill to know what is happening in your, it's like a hypervigilant reactive dog. Yeah. And then yeah. my father had newspapers and I grew up writing on his newspapers and journalism is also a high stress industry. And also um, you get that dopamine hit with breaking news because we're the first on the scene. We had press passes back when that was a big deal. Um, I mean, I, he trained me to have a camera in my car. And if there was a wreck, he wanted me to go get photos. Like not the gory ones that he wouldn't print that. He had pretty high standards as a journalist, but he wanted the the wreck and the you mm-hmm. know, just they have an expression in journalism. If it bleeds, it leads it. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I, that's just kind of what I did. I just kept putting myself in high stress industries, high pressure situations. I think that's all trauma related. I think my rescue work, I think it helped heal me in some ways because I was taking young, healthy puppies, younger dogs, they weren't all puppies and getting them homes that I couldn't provide. I mean, I fostered 400 dogs. My husband and I did together in Texas over 10 years and that's where that was my lab laboratory. I learned so I learned more in those 10 years than I could have done in any course I've ever taken or any book I've ever read or written. It's that physical working with a dog and reading their their signs and learning things like some dogs need six months or a year to decompress from their, their trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't talk about dogs having trauma in the 2000s, but thank, thank, thankfully we are now. Um, so I, there, there is some healing for sure in working with animals. And I think that's kind of an instinct. Um, if you came from trauma and that first bond was with a dog or a cat or whatever it is. Um, but in my life, I think I've, I went, I would go too far with it and become um, extremely defensive of animals. And I would, um, and, and bullying, I really can't stand bullying, but particularly of animals. And so I became pretty reactive to what other trainers tools that they would use. And like, because I went through a Schutzen school as well in Texas, which was one of the most horrific things I've ever done in my life. It was the only school in the state that I could go to at the time. And I saw horrific things. And I know how they're trained. I know how those dogs are trained, even to this day in many, many of the sports. Um, and that was just like reliving the trauma. But yeah. I wanted to be a dog. I rescued so many dogs that I thought to my, my plan was, because uh, I sold my literary company, and I could have just retired and <laughs> written books and been a, you know, ridden my horses and not be re-engaged with the world, but there's that call in me to help dogs, help dogs, help dogs. And I know how mistreated they were, particularly in that area. So I 
thought to myself, how can I help all these rescue dogs? I can't foster all of them. There's not enough homes. I mean, it is really, really bad overpopulation. It still is to this day. And that was 20 years ago. So I thought I'll become a trainer. And I, I wanted the certification that the school provided me. I like, I wasn't r- real. I wasn't bonafide unless I had some certifications. <laughs> and yep. Many of us have felt that. Yeah. And some of that's being female and not being taken seriously, I think. So I went to that Schutzen school because I thought I can stop some of these dogs from being dumped from for basic behaviors like pulling on a leash, chasing children on their bikes and, and that sort of thing. That was my motivation to stop the be one person who can um, stop that just constant drop off of dogs for being dogs, basically. Yeah. So that's how I became a trainer. That, that's, that was 25 years ago. And uh, wrote, started writing books because the same thing. Oh, well, I was always a writer. But I, I wrote a column for Dogster, a magazine, a Dogster Online, a training column. And they had a publishing house at the time. And they asked me to write a book. And it just kind of nat- naturally happened. It usually doesn't happen that way for authors. And I say I did the same thing. I can reach more dog owners from a book than I will ever have time to do in a day. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got into writing books. But basically... I feel like dogs are very, very special gifts to us from whoever, wherever you want to say, put them here. And they chose, I feel like they chose to to be by our side 30,000 years ago and no other animal has. And it's a very dangerous thing for an animal to get near to humans because we control everything. We're the apex yeah. predators of the world. Um, so I just feel a, a, a deep respect and love of dogs. And um, I feel like that, that it's mutual. And I, I do get a lot of satisfaction out of helping dogs, even though it's also very painful work. Um, yeah. When you can't help them. Can you tell me a little bit about that, that you stepped away from training because it is so painful? Are you willing to share a little bit about that experience? I mean, burnout is such a huge problem. In the, it, it, I, I don't think that a lot of trainers think of themselves as animal welfare workers, but that is what we're doing. We're trying to make the world better for dogs, and that's always hard. Um, yeah. You see what the dog is, especially if you're an empath or you have the special skill brought to you by your dysfunctional family that you can see the dog's fear. Um, it just, it hurts. It really hurts. And, and I've always worked behavior. To me, it was all behavior. Like I wasn't a sport person. I wasn't interested in tricks. I was like kind of a crisis and an emergency. And it's probably that dopamine hit, you know, if I can solve this for this dog, then everybody can calm down. I can calm down. They can, I didn't call it, um, calming down the nervous system or the dog was just dysregulated. And we say that now, but that's, I think I was just seeking relief Mm -hmm. itself and for the dog. And that that's exhausting. It's very exhausting. And um, in 2015, when I wrote the midnight dog walkers that came out in 2016, um, lots of things happened in my life that I just was like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I don't, I know that feeling of burnout where you're just empty. Like you Mm -hmm. love, you got burned out helping the very one creature that you love the most in your life. And it's very depressing. And I didn't really see any way out of it. I had been doing that for 10 or 15 years and I still wanted in my core to help dogs, but I was physically exhausted. Um, my husband's after we moved to Colorado, my husband worked in high tech for a firm in Austin and he would fly back every two weeks and we bought a 40 acre ranch. And, um, his boss was a, he, he was friends with Jeff and Jeff was the only one who didn't have to be in the office. This was way before remote became a thing, remote work. So he would fly back and stay at my dad's condo in Austin every two weeks. So he was gone a lot and I was running the farm. We had horses and donkeys and training center. I had dogs staying with me. I started boarding dogs, reactive dogs. 
And um, my training career was really flourishing then, but I was just so tired, so physically tired and emotionally. Like, I need a break. And I, the world kind of forced a break on me because um, right after we bought our ranch, a co- company, high-tech company came in and bought Jeff's company, his where he worked, and fired the entire IT department. And there are no high-tech jobs in Durango, Colorado, none whatsoever at anywhere surrounding it. We would even thought Albuquerque. There wasn't anything for his specific skill set. He ended up in Wyoming for two years. And that was my dream property, my dream house. I had horses. I had a beautiful barn. I always wanted to be in Durango. And um, I, then I was just crashing emotionally with the dogs. I'm like, I just can't do that. It's The need was too great. And the yeah. sorrow was too much of what I was seeing, even though I made some of the best friends of my life uh, that were my clients or dog people there. It's just too much for years and years and years and years of doing that. I mean, I kind of envy sport dog trainers in a way because they're not really, um, they have something that's fun or should be fun that they're training Mm -hmm. the dog to do and do as a team versus depressing dog bites child and dog family has to give up the dog story. So anyway, so life conspired against me to keep training in it and I'm thankful that it did. Um, So I ran the ranch by myself for two years. We put it up for sale. It's not like it is now. It, um, It was a horse property outside of Durango. It took two years to sell. And meanwhile, Jeff is in Wyoming and uh, in a small little rental house. It was so depressing for him because he got a job with an ad agency up there. And he would come home once a month, seven, eight hour hectic drive through Colorado. And then he'd have to work because we had property, you know, like work for 12 hours and get back in the car on Sunday and drive back. So it was very, very, very stressful. And something had to give. And what I gave up was the dog training. And and we ended up moving to Utah where we are now because my husband got, I said, you've got to apply for jobs with a recruiter. You can't keep, you can't live in Wyoming and me down here. This is not what we want to do as a married couple. Um, And I had to give up my dream of Durango, which was a very painful thing for me because that's where I wanted to be. I felt, I loved Mm -hmm. it there. And I mean, I had everything. I had my dogs live their life off leash on a 40 acre ranch. It was absolutely perfection, but it, it really wasn't. There were things that were wrong with it, including a, an aggressive neighbor. Um, so I finally had to give up the, the ranch and move to Utah because he got with a recruiter and he was offered a job near Park City. And I wasn't happy about it, <laughs> even though Utah is stunning. It's gorgeous. It just still wasn't my dream. It's like getting a dog that you dreamed was going to be your agility champion and the dog hates agility or, or isn't good mm-hmm. at it. Um, you can try to force it for a while, but no, well, nobody's happy. Yeah. And so during that time, I was we were renting in Utah, and we had a renter in Colorado because this house didn't sell. So I was going back and forth a lot, taking care of my horses and checking on the house. They ended up trashing the property. And so we kicked them out, and that was fun. But I was in Colorado all the time because I wanted to go back, and I it, it didn't take much to go back. So I, I physically wasn't able to train um, during that time. And luckily – this went on for four or five years, but or maybe three, the whole moving process. And then the two after that, I'm like, I had no desire to go back. I couldn't, it, when you get that burned out, like any little question just irritates that the person irritates you, the dog irritates you. And it's like mm-hmm. this thing I've put all my learning, all my love into, I do love dogs dearly. Um, how can they be everything irritating me? You just don't, that expression, yeah. don't have any more spoons to give. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I consciously said I'm done, but I just I never put myself as a trainer in Utah anywhere. I didn't. I had a website and I would do consults and I removed myself from the industry. I wasn't 
in the fights anymore because that's exhausting. Mm -hmm. That's a huge part of burnout is the fights on the force free side. And I wasn't in groups and, you know, I just had hang out uh, online with my few friends from the industry. And um, I would probably, and I, I cooked a lot. I started getting into keto, keto, we got really healthy. And I started learning to love to cook because I was never taught to cook as a kid. There was weird things that I was not taught. Like nobody brushed my hair for years. (laughs) How do you not brush your child? Anyway. And so nobody taught us how to cook, how how to survive, really. Um, So I learned to cook, which I think was nourishing and really enjoyed it. I even started a little company where I cooked keto meals for people locally. And that kept me very, very busy. And I didn't even think about training. And I probably was done for good and happy. I was so happy and relaxed. And And I would think I was kind of decompressing after all of the trauma of my life and all the trauma of working with distressed dogs. Um, and felt really happy. And I was happy adjusted to Utah. Um, I had my two border collies with me. We went on hikes. Uh, one year I tried to do uh, 52 hikes. <laughs> it's the thing people do here is, you know, one a week, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't do that stuff when you're an entrepreneur. Or I didn't, I wasn't a good enough time management because everything seemed like a crisis. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of is, especially in the dog world. Um, I painted furniture and I, I'm not crafty at all, but um, with uh, what's the chalk paint makes anybody and Annie Sloan, is that her name? Chalk paint makes makes anybody look like they're a good painter. And I didn't care about the furniture; it wasn't emotional. You know, it's a f- piece of furniture. Take it, do whatever you want with it. I don't care. So that was very healing time for me, and I really needed it. And I know that I could only do it because of my husband. Um, mm-hmm. Most people women um you know run the company they have other people to pay they have more bills to pay they have a training center to pay i did i never had a training center i just did it out of my house and i have a wonderful husband and he's like maybe you should just retire because he got to see me relaxed i was cooking meals he was like wow this is amazing you're relaxed and happy incredible yeah i was (laughs) snippy (laughs) um we started like taking trips and doing all the things that so-called normal people do and we didn't have kids. And I think kids, you focus your life on kids a lot. And, and you know, summer means something to you when you have kids and spring break and you see so you plan stuff. And we just didn't. So we just kept working through it. And I was, that was my life. I was just going to be a housewife, basically, which is strange because I'm kind of a type A or was a type A hard driving. I got to do stuff, you know, again, probably from my trauma, trauma traumatic childhood. Anyway, uh, my publisher called me for my second book in 2021 and, and COVID happened. Like what happened during mm-hmm. COVID? What were those two years? I don't really know what anyone was doing except trying to live. And so they contacted me in 21 and asked me to write a second book, a second edition of the Midnight Dog Walkers. And this is finally coming out in 23 because the book writing is such a long process and there were lots of delays. And I almost said no. I absolutely almost said no because it's a lot of work and I was done. But mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine in um, Ireland, a dog trainer named Denise O'Moore, she said, you have to do it. Um, do it for the owners, because that's who I'm always about is helping the owners. Like, I don't want to. It's so hard. And I <laughs> my husband said, don't do it. You know, he's very supportive. He's like, but you've been out of it. And it's, I think something similar happened to you when you left. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. It just pulls you back in. It pulls you back in. And it, it's different when you make a choice to step in. So there was a pull and I was, I made a choice to come back in. And it sounds very much to me like you did the same, like they were saying, 
write the book. Come on back. We need you. And, and your husband's like, yeah, do they? Maybe you don't need to. And so you were able to weigh it and decide for yourself to do that. And now your book has just come out because you dove back in. And it changed my life in a good way, which I never expected from a nonfiction book of mine. Because I wasn't writing it for me. That wasn't mm-hmm. my premise. I was writing it to help dog owners because there really are not enough good, qualified, force-free behavior type experts. They're just, and dogs are more trouble than ever. But I, the reason I think I like the, the, well, I like to write books, even though I know it's very hard. And it is hard. And it's, again, a three-year process on this one. But um, I decided midway through writing it to interview other experts. And um, that's what changed my life is talking to the, to my colleagues because it was COVID years and we did Zoom. Like I, in the last three years, I've talked to more trainers and professionals than I ever had in t- 25 years previous mm-hmm. because we didn't have the conferences. And what I discovered in interviewing these experts was, so I put my journalist hat on and said, what has changed in the five years? Are we still doing counter conditioning and desensitizing? Because uh, I found that pretty ineffective and difficult for owners and um, didn't solve a lot of the problems in my experience. It it can sort of help. It can stop the screaming and the embarrassment, but I don't know that it changes a dog's opinion the way we of its trigger, the way we thought it did. Who knows exactly. But um, I wanted, I wanted new ways. So I started um, asking who's doing, who's new, who's what's new, who, what, where, when, and why all the journalist questions and I got fascinated the more I dug into it. And um, the way it kind of organically, I ended up with 17 experts. Um, like I didn't have a master list. Oh, I have to get that person. I have to get that person. It's just that I heard about one person's program. And then on that, her program, I saw her interview so-and-so. And it was actually Andrew Hale and Beyond the Operant. Um, it's on um, YouTube, his series. I'm like, Beyond the Operant? That sounds, what the heck is that? And it just blew my mind expanded my mind that there's so many creative ways to help dogs that is beyond operant conditioning, thankfully, that's full of compassion and wisdom. And a lot of them are also trauma survivors, these people. And I developed real friendships. Like some of them I sort of knew, some of them I maybe knew well, but many of them I'd never spoken to, the experts. And they were so, and, and when I sat back and had them all done, I realized I went for kind people. I went for people that I don't see fighting. I don't see the, it's not the mean girls in my book. I didn't want it or whatever you want to call them. And there are, are a lot of mean girls out there. Um, it's people that have their head down and, and they're, they're working really hard um, and making a difference. You know, you, you said that you get to interview people and um, interesting people on your podcast. And that's one of my favorite things. I want to interview interesting people who are making the world better for dogs. Mm-hmm. And through, and I asked everybody, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the welfare of dogs? They all said optimistic. I'm like, why? I'm not. <laughs> I'm still bitter. <laughs> and they changed my perspective. They made me a bigger person, a better trainer. Um, I got really excited about the industry. And I have never been excited about the industry because it, it feels toxic to me and not just me. It is toxic I, I, in many ways. Um, and out of that growth, the book, um, I did start training again. I just, you know, do some consults basically every now and then, but my heart is not really in that anymore. It's, um, I got so much out of so much healing talking to my colleagues that had never, like, I didn't even think that was possible. I thought we were, it it felt like my dysfunctional family, the whole industry to me, like, who do you really trust? Mm -hmm. That person's safe. And we're so exhausted as an industry. 
I don't think we have a lot of emotional depth left over to be friends. <laughs> um, and Zoom kind of, uh, Zoom and um, COVID kind of made us more, uh, where we talk to each other more. And I, I, it just blew me away. I'm like, if you're only online, you watch all the infighting, you think it is toxic. It's hor- It can be horrific and people just leave the industry. I think the average is two years, according to the Census Bureau. Um, or they burn out like I did. And that's part mm-hmm. of the reason is the toxic nature of the industry. Um, and then I found out by doing this book, it's not that way, really. If you, yeah. if you dig a little deeper and you make these connections, like every single person I interviewed said yes immediately. They, no one asked for money. Nobody said, well, who else is in the book? <laughs> you know, who am I going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and the and I got to know them quite well through that through a year of writing and editing. And I, because of that connection, I went on um, this year. I got with um, 24 other trainers. I asked for volunteers and 24 people stepped up immediately and said, who is advocating for canine professionals? Where's our cheerleader? You know, nurses have their association, veterinarians have their association, doctors, professionals have associations that are there to speak up for them and provide them things like education. And we have some organizations that I love the Pet Professional Guild, and I'm a member, a proud member. Um, They help us become better trainers and better business owners. But I'm not seeing a lot of talk about burnout, which is probably the number one issue that people have. And just pure physical exhaustion. Yeah. So I started the Phoenix Advocacy Center for Canine Professionals with these other people. Um, I say that we're a bunch of crones and Neil, because Neil was the, you know, Rubenstein in Florida was the first male trainer to step up. And now we have quite a few uh, in the group. And we based it on Not One More Vet, um, which many people know about that organization. And they helped coach us. And they started in 2015 after Sophia again passed away. And they're like, we have to do something. This is this is a very, very difficult job. So they formed Not One More Vet nonprofit to lift each other up. It's peer-to-peer support. They went through all sorts of struggles with that group that we can kind of avoid in ours because they learned from it. And so they've been kind of in the background helping us. And I'm very, very grateful that they did. So we opened our members group in, in uh, April. And it's been up for two months and we took some peer to peer training, quite a bit of it. And I learned, I didn't know how to do peer to peer support. I'm like, what? I didn't even know what that is. Is that really a thing? And apparently it's been happening for the last 10 years or so in organizations. And it reframed how I see social media fights. I can now come in with a little more compassion or a lot more and listen instead of trying to solve it. I'm a, I'm a I like to solve trainers, solve problems. Trainers solve problems. Yep. And I have to refrain still, even at six months of this, a very, in, in, I've immersed myself in it because it's, it's been healing for me. And I think for all these other trainers I'm working with, like it feels so much better to help another trainer than to fight another trainer mm-hmm. and just begin with, if you're in our group and you're positive, it's only open to positive reinforcement and trainers or professionals, not just trainers um, and crossovers, trainers who are not using any aversive, but it's not open to aversive trainers. That's a different conversation to have elsewhere. And there's plenty of places for that. Um, but it's been remarkable. It's been so healing to see people not fighting. And like we have moderators, we have 10 moderators. And um, we've had special training on how to, to respond in a way that makes a person feel seen and heard versus fixing it. Yeah. But the trainers who haven't had that training or the members do the same thing almost naturally. You know, they're not maybe using some of the same language, 
And I think I've had to have three private conversations where I I contact the person and said, I invite you to, to reconsider or reframe what you have said. And here's why, because we're all, we're all survivors and the stories of trauma, like you're telling, you're interviewing people and people have been sharing mm-hmm. uh, some of the trauma. Well, I mean, are any dog trainers, do they not have a traumatic childhood? It It is amazing to me, the more I learn about human behavior, the more I say things like, it's amazing that any of us can make dinner, much less create an entire life, a thriving business, strong relationships, any of those kinds of things. Everybody has a story that can break your heart. Everybody. And um, I think one of the things you said about the learning to listen to people and and not try to solve their problems, that feels so hard in the beginning. And what you said about your interviews with these 17 experts and how it changed you was just the fact that you guys were sharing. You were just sharing experience and the power of someone witnessing you and admiring your strength and cheering you on through a struggle is so much more restorative than someone saying, and you know what you should do? Here's what you should do. Because that makes you actually feel less, a little bit like maybe they don't think you know how to handle things or that you're capable of handling things, which is never the intention. Um, When I learned about this, this was really powerful for me, that when you share a problem with me and I see a solution and so I offer it, I'm offering it from a place of extreme generosity. I want to help you. The reason I want to help you is because you telling me your story is lighting up pain triggers in my brain. And my brain is going, oh my gosh, that hurts, which so many of us empaths out there know, oh my God, that hurts. So when I have an idea of how this could help, I share my idea with you and my pain triggers go down. Ah, It feels much better on my side. Unfortunately, though, (laughs) it does not feel better on your side. And so once people who understand that, understand that it is our empathy that is making us want so desperately to leap in with the solution. I mean, how often does that solution actually work? When someone offers you a solution, you've already considered it and it doesn't fit for you for these reasons. You know, you're a smart person. If it was something you could just think your way out of, you would have thought your way out of it. So for most problems, having someone there to witness and to support you and to encourage you and to say, what does support look like for you? As opposed to, here's my idea of how to fix that. That isn't small. That's everything. That's everything, at least in my opinion. I think that's why the group has, like I, I was getting up at five in the morning and getting to work um, because I had a whole new lease on life. This was just something I hadn't, I don't think I've ever experienced in the industry ever where I'm ecstatic. Like, I, what what are we going to do tomorrow? You know, <laughs> we're, we're applying for our nonprofit um, and we want to do things like gift baskets for um, trainers that are having a hard time that either people nominate them or a lot of trainers will say on their personal page that they're, I mean, it's really, if you really take a step back, the trainers are, are very much suffering. I mean, not all of us are, but it's, you know, like in one month I had uh, one trainer passed out on her driveway from de- dehydration. Several are going through divorces. 
um, you know, just all the normal life stuff in addition to what their daily job is, which is very hard. And I don't think anyone has said that to a trainer, really. You have a very, very difficult job, especially behavior workers or rescue workers. I mean, mm-hmm. not only do you have a hard job, but you're enormously competent in what you're doing. It, even though mm-hmm. people don't trust you or believe you or downplay your expertise all the time, and everyone's an expert on dog behavior, even though very few are, um, I'm just astounded at what trainers get accomplished. Like you said, how do we even make dinner every day with all of this in our stored in our bodies, all the trauma? And I saw that again when I not only through my interviews for the book, but when I got together with the 25 volunteers, we were like knocking stuff out left and right. Yeah. Um, Neil Rubenstein got us uh, somebody to donate a logo, which is very expensive. And I love our little has a kind of a pit bull type dog on it. I mean, it just it was serendipitous. It happened a, serendipity a lot. And it still happens a lot. I mean, I, I got connected to you through um, Melina Martini because she I interviewed her in the book. <laughs> And she, she put us together. Um, you know, I don't, we probably would have hopefully met eventually, but that, that introduction happened because of the book for me, for my, yeah. um, and that's, that kind of stuff just keeps happening over and over and over. And I mean, I, I just want to get bigger and stronger as a, as an organization and, and have funding. That's why we're really pressing hard to get our nonprofit so we can raise money with grants and sponsorships. And then it's like, who knows, like maybe even conferences from our own members about how to, I think not one more vet says, we want to teach you how to have a life that you don't want to escape from. Mm -hmm. And so that's really probably what I'm going to be doing the next 10 years is, um, and then I want to give it to someone younger (laughs) um, to to handle it, but I want it well financed. That's my next goal is I want money so that we can do scholarships. We can, um, you know, help and also the, during COVID, not one more vet had grants. Um, for um, veterinarians that had to shut their doors. A lot of them did, but it was like a thousand dollar grant for an individual or 5,000 for a group. They even have relief veterinarians who can go like you're having family health issues or whatever it is, hurricanes and that kind of stuff, natural disasters. They will send in a veterinarian that they pay for. I mean, has, can any trainers afford to do that? I don't, I don't think that's amazing. An amazing level of support behind the scenes to be able to do that for them. Wouldn't it be incredible if something similar could happen for pet professionals? Yeah. And I want to have, cause I've come from the media. I want to have a media response team that we're working on when we see these horrific articles because journalists are not trainers are not experts. And they go to, you know, Joe who has had dogs for 30 years or maybe five years and he has no behavior certifications, but he calls himself an expert and he starts sharing his wisdom when he really is not an expert in what he's saying is hurting dogs, you know, dominance theory, throw the dog on the ground, you know, all, all the crazy stuff that really um, takes a toll on you as a trainer. Cause then you have to fight or educate the owner who heard it on TV and they're really hurting their dogs. It's like re-traumatizing yourself and leads to a lot of burnout. Well, I want to have a media response team where we proactively send out information and try to educate reporters. But when a story comes out and we know it's incorrect, factually it's incorrect. And we have the science because we all lean on science to back it up. You know, we will just gently contact the reporter in hopes of next time you write about dogs, please contact one of us. Mm -hmm. We are, we are experts and we will tell you what science is actually saying versus science that's cherry picked and that proves that dominance works when 
that's that's thrown out. But so that's another thing I want to do. But it's it's been remarkable. It's like I, I just want somebody to acknowledge, and it's going to be our group that dog trainers are made and canine professionals, groomers, walkers, and then that to me that includes veterinarians. Some of the most com- um, compassionate and kick-ass people that get shit done every single day and yeah. with terribly hard jobs. Like we know veterinarians have a hard job. They've done a very good job of helping owners understand that although a lot of owners still need to understand how difficult it is, but nobody is out there saying it's hard to be a dog trainer and you're doing a great job. Mm-hmm. If I'm not going to be able to, cause I am, I'm not that interested. I still work, you know, one or two cases a month, but that's not my full-time focus or job. I want to make sure that those really good trainers that get, that just need some help, some temporary help or whatever it is or support or backing that they don't quit. You know, because too many of us have quit. You quit. I quit. Yeah. I want to be involved in in being that shoulder to lean on when, when they need it. I think that's awesome and amazing. So if somebody wanted to learn more about that, what should they do? How could someone learn more about the Phoenix Advocacy Center? Uh, we have a website, and that's what it's called, the Phoenix Advocacy Center. We have a members group on Facebook. It's private, but you can find us under Phoenix Advocacy Center members. We have a separate volunteers group. Uh, Volunteers have to go through certain kinds of training to become a volunteer. And our moderators have even more training. And that's another reason we're also raising funds so that we can continue to educate ourselves. But the members group is the main place. And we, we have posting rules just to kind of guide people. But the main two I got from the veterinary group, which is um, for them, it's be a veterinarian or in the veterinary service. And so ours is canine professional, force-free, fear-free canine professional, and don't be an asshole. (laughs) Those are the two main rules. Although even I see now everything from a lens of education versus, like, I think we take things so personally online because women are, it's very, you know, treacherous to be female online or female in the world, but online is there's a whole lot of cyberbullying, even if it's women bullying other women. But we're also so tired and exhausted and worn out that it's very easy to misread, especially online, what someone says to you, like something, somebody answers curtly. And I just block. I was the queen of block. And I block a lot less now because I'm, I'm rested enough and encouraged enough to do what Laura Donaldson calls cognitive reappraisal. And, and look at somebody, somebody says something rude to me online, unless it's just, an, you know, bullying, and then they're about goodbye, I don't care. But just something that it old me would have been knee jerk, how dare you? You're rude, I hate you, we're on opposite sides of the fence. I can now dispassionately kind of look at it and go, um, what is this person ex- trying to express? And it does it, it probably comes from a, um, a space of trauma in their lives yeah. versus attacking me personally. It's so it just shifts everything that you can see. People are hurting. Um, everybody is hurting. It's just kind of where you are in your, your trauma story and your recovery. And I also learned from the stuff that we studied as peer-to-peer advocates that most people do recover. There, there was a big scientific study um, that studied, not necessarily from peer-to-peer support, although that's huge, but from their own personal traumas. Most people tend to get better over time. Yeah, post-traumatic growth. We have a lot of information about, you know, post-traumatic stress disorders and things like that, which is real, absolutely. But we also have just tremendous evidence of post-traumatic growth. And for people to know that that is possible, um, just, I don't know, it instills hope and 
gosh, we need hope. <laughs> we need hope and openness these days. And that surprised me that 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 statistically people have looked at that. And it just like it surprised me how kind a lot of these big name dog trainers are and how much and they don't have anyone to talk to either. Like we were doing interviews, Denise and I on my Facebook Live for a year, and almost everybody would stay 20 minutes before, 20 minutes to an hour afterwards after we turned off the recording, because they don't have anybody really to talk to. But most of us are too busy. Um, but that framework to me has been missing. I mean, you can have good friends, you know, we all have friendships, but that support network where you can say, hey, I'm having a hard time, I need somebody to talk to, and then have somebody who has some training to help you through it versus fixing it. That also mm-hmm. changed everything for me, because I'm a fixer. Yeah. And, <laughs> and when you can't do that, or you stop yourself, I'm not going to fix this for her, but I'm going to listen. And I'm going to, and I'm going to ask her, how can I support you? That changes, I mean, every conversation. Yeah. It's been remarkable. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing, gosh, your whole journey, because because it does matter and it will probably resonate with many people, uh, so many elements of your journey and the choices you made and how how things are different for you now. Certainly, we're all benefiting from the fact that you decided to dive back in and do work that really matters. And I think anything anyone can do to support another trainer is awesome. And so I'm very, very grateful to you because you're trying to do it on a big scale with a really ambitious and clearly thought out plan. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being in our group and being a part of it. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. And I'm so appreciative. I've already learned so much from you. I feel like it's almost a therapy session every time I get. (laughs) So I've, I've, I mean, it's, it's just, it's growth. It's emotional growth that I thought I had already figured all that stuff out because I'd studied my own family and trauma so much, but this is a growth in a a professional way that I wasn't ever hopeful of. I didn't even know it was possible. So I know. And now that more of us know more of the skills, you know, I know things now that I wish I knew when I was training, the more we can share some of that, the more we can support people who are out there doing the training, doing the work, working with families, working in the shelters, working in the animal hospitals, all the things make them better able to see their gifts and their impact and, and recognize that while they can't do everything, what they are doing matters so, so much. So. So thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for being so open and honest and sharing all this. I very much appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Unleashed at Work and Home. I invite you to come learn more at ColleenPilar.com where you can be steady, be strong, and be long.